So, uh, as Richard's finding it, right, let's read together, shall we, from Matthew. Matthew chapter 6. And uh, we'll read from verse 5. Jesus says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So the Lord's Prayer appears in Matthew chapter 6. Bye, Noah. Bye, Alex. <laughs> in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, he's loud, isn't he? <laughs> and, uh, and again in Luke chapter 11, in a slightly different context, where the disciples come to Jesus and say, Lord, teach us to pray. And I hope that if you were here last week, you noticed the seamless transition between the end of parables, parable on prayer, and prayer. You'd even might have thought we planned it. So we're going to look at this subject, teach us to pray, particularly focused around the Lord's Prayer over these next weeks up until half term. I reckoned on something a bit easier than 1 Corinthians, but having done one week of this, I'm beginning to wonder whether it in fact it is easier or not. It's more than a prayer, isn't it? It outlines the most fundamental aspects of our Christian life and discipleship. Lord, teach us to pray. If you can't see that, it's two vicars. They say, I appreciate your efforts to reach a younger parishioner, Father Sean, but I draw the line at ending prayers with whatever instead of amen. <laughs> Jesus uses just 72 words to express some of the most life-giving attitudes and profound paradigms. That's ways of seeing reality. This prayer reveals the building blocks for authentic spiritual formation, discipleship, and that's been our theme over a number of months now. Authentic spiritual formation, that's being with Christ. That's an aspect of it. But it's not just being with Christ. It's becoming like him, and it's living for him. And if you take any one of those things and just leave it in isolation, it's not enough. Our being in the presence of God must transform us. And as we are transformed in our character and our attitudes, we will live for him. And this prayer 
encompasses all of those different aspects together and so much more. The teaching within the Lord's Prayer could, can, let's be more positive, <laughs> lead to complete transformation in us, in our church, and from there into our community and beyond. That's how powerful this small section of Scripture is. It is a pattern for our praying. Of course, it's useful to learn it, and most of the time we just recite it, which is ironic since earlier on in this bit of Scripture, Jesus says, don't just recite prayers like the pagans. There's nothing wrong with reciting it, and reciting it is a way of learning it and getting it deeply embedded within us. But it's a pattern for our prayers. And if all we do is recite it, then it's pretty much the same as learning a bit of Shakespeare or a poem or a psalm. It's just in your head, and it has to be prayed out of your heart. The Lord's Prayer, if you like, is the foundation upon which our own praying is the superstructure. Superstructure. So we build on these things, these key things, these core values that Jesus encompasses within his teaching on prayer that we sum up as the Lord's Prayer. So what we're going to be doing over these next weeks is taking it, not exactly phrase by phrase, but something like that uh, until we reach the end. And you'll realize that that won't take terribly long because it's not terribly long. So you can breathe a sigh of relief there as well. So, Jesus starts off, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And particularly for Sam, I've put it in Hebrew as well. Hope you're grateful, Sam. If I was really mean, I'd get you to read it out loud, which is what I did earlier on, and without looking at the bit that makes it easier. That's how long it is, though. It's not long, is it? It's just short. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You know, sometimes you read something and it just, it's so really obvious, but it just jumps off the page. And I was reading in one of the commentaries, which are all helpfully called the Lord's Prayer. Um, Our Father is not the same as dear God. Our Father is not the same as dear God. And it just leaped off the page. And I went, of course, of course it isn't. And yet so often when we teach children to pray, we say, Dear God, and when we write prayers, we start, dear God, not that there's anything the matter with that, but our Father encapsulates so much more, is so much more personal and genuine and relational than dear God. Please don't feel bad if you ever say dear God, that's fine. Our, our Father. We talk a lot, don't we, about society and community, the breakdown of those things, how desperately we need that sense of community. Society speaks to our ability to organize ourselves as a group of people. Community speaks to our connectedness to each other. Society refers to structures and systems. Community refers to relationships. Our forms the bridge between you and me. Our Father. Jesus could so easily have said, when you pray, say, my Father. There's nothing the matter with that. He is my Father. But Jesus teaches us, pray, our Father. Spirituality formed in a relational vacuum turns out to be hollow. I am an extremely loving person on my own. 
I am really, really patient and tolerant on my own. And I imagine that all of the rest of you are just like that, aren't you? Loving, patient, peaceful, joyful, on your own. <laughs> and then other people come in. Just ruins it all, doesn't it? You know I don't mean that, but our discipleship has to be worked out in community, in relationship. How can I know if I'm a loving person until somebody upsets me and I need to continue loving them? I'm not a very loving person. How, how can I know if I'm patient until someone comes across my path and irritates me when I find out I'm not patient. How can I learn those things? How can I see Jesus working within me, transforming me by his Holy Spirit, producing the fruit of the Spirit within, within me? It's in community, isn't it? It's in relationship. Our Father. We may pray on our own. In fact, praying on our own is a good thing. But this prayer calls us to a corporate life of prayer shared with other people. A life where we give to each other, bless each other. I don't know about you, but I actually find it much easier to pray with other people. I find that I'm less easily distracted, more able to focus and concentrate. Sorry, is this a confession I shouldn't be making? I kind of feel like that with the look of your faces. <laughs> pray about things that I would probably never pray about on my own. And just find that the ability to keep on going is much better when I'm with other people. And I listen to them and I think, wow, that's amazing. And I learn from them because of the way they pray and the way they bring God into situations. Actually praying together out of the time that we spend on our own with the Lord is a really powerful thing. And so, yes, we sat in silence, but actually that was also powerful this morning, praying together in the same space. There are other weeks when we all need to pray and we need to get our sentences upside down and around the wrong way and say the wrong thing and be untrinitarian and all manner of other scary things that you can do when you pray out loud. But actually that's important too as we listen and share together in that our community. Our means that we all come on a level playing field. Our doesn't distinguish between classes or categories with how you're, how you're doing as a Christian, whether you think that you are good or bad, whether you have come running to the presence of God or crawling into the presence of God. It doesn't distinguish between that. Our Father, we come on the same terms, Jesus. Our Father is that real contrast to the somewhat impersonal and generic dear God, our. And the word that Jesus uses for Father, as I'm sure you already know, is that very simple word, Abba. <laughs> it's what Noah would say if he was just a few more months along the line. Abba, Dada. It's got that simplicity to it in the Aramaic. <laughs> it's not settling today, is it? Is it being recorded, Richard? It's being recorded. You'll be fine. <laughs> it's, a, it's the same term that... Um, <laughs> that's all right. <laughs> it's fine. 
it's kind of somehow appropriate. I think you'd really notice it if one of my children started crying during your sermon. <laughs> if you go to the Middle East today and you hear children running around, they will be saying, Abba, Abba, come here, Abba, watch this, Abba, see me. It's got that level of intimacy, childlikeness. But we must remember as well that it's a respectful familiarity, the context that Jesus was growing up in. Yeah, he was Abba, but he was my father. And there is both of those things encapsulated in this term, Abba. It's a word of belonging and connection, a word of family and protection, a word of love, isn't it? It's where we start in all our prayer, in that relationship. But we don't hear what Jesus' followers heard. We don't hear the scandal, pretty much, to his first century hearers. For all the Jews around him, they had been so, so careful with the name of God. Yahweh, I am who I am. Elohim, the great and mighty God. El Shaddai, the God of the mountains. They were used to referring to God with great awe and respect, the mighty creator, Lord, Lord of hosts. And whilst in the Old Testament it refers to the fatherhood of God and comes a little bit close on one occasion, it never actually calls God Father and certainly not Abba. And so when Jesus says, when you start your prayer, say our Father, which is actually one word in Hebrew, they probably would have just like jaws dropped to the ground. What do you mean? Abba? Is that not inappropriate? Is that not too intimate, too close, too relational? How can I say that? And Jesus brings in this new level of intimacy, reminding us that our God protects us and nurtures us as his children. Jesus calls God Father, I think on every occasion pretty much that he prays, because he is his Son. <laughs> but what he does is he stands there with his father and says, you two are included in this relationship. You two can say Abba because you are adopted into this family. And the same love the father has for me, he has for you. And the same relationship that I have in terms of son, father, you also can have as adopted children of the father we are adopted into that family. Our spiritual formation, our discipleship begins with the Father's unquenchable love for us. Everything about our walk with Jesus begins with the Father's unquenchable love for us. And Jesus told that beautiful story that we're so familiar with, the story of the prodigal son. The extravagantly, recklessly wasteful son. I mean, the word prodigal is meaningless to us, isn't it? The extravagant, recklessly wasteful son. Jesus tells us this story about him and how he ran away from the father. He wished his father was dead, took his inheritance and spent it on all sorts of rubbish and found himself eating the food that the pigs ate. Remember, he was Jewish. 
and eventually reckoned that coming home was a better option than staying where he was. I don't know that there was much more to it than that. He just reckoned it was a better option. And all that time, the father is waiting. He's waiting. I don't know if they had one of those American verandas, you know, like they have in the deep south, but I picture the father sitting in the rocking chair on the veranda every day, waiting, just waiting, looking. Maybe he fell asleep in his chair at night because he was waiting. And as soon as he saw his son on the horizon, he did what Jewish men never ever do, which is he gathered up his robes and he took them into his belt and he ran. He ran to meet him. It was an utter disgrace. You are running? Jewish men don't run. To meet a son who's wished you dead, who's spent all your money? And the father extravagantly, recklessly wasted his love upon his son, the prodigal father. That is our father. That's what he's like. And depending on your own circumstances, you may find that an easier or more difficult concept to get your head and heart around. For some people, their dad has been great. And, and they actually kind of go, well, yeah, God's just a bit better than my dad. <laughs> Maybe that also has its issues. And for some people, dad is really quite a negative, really negative, even abusive reality. And, and to say that, that God is like that is quite hard. And it would take me a whole other day to unpack that. But Jesus said, because most of us don't have so many issues with Jesus, <laughs> Jesus said, whoever's seen me has seen the Father. It's really profound, isn't it? Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. So everything that you like, love, appreciate about Jesus, everything that you see of him in the Gospels, that's what our Father in heaven is like. He is like that. And none of us have perfect fathers. Some have demanding some struggle to express love unconditionally. Some are really, really busy. Some are distracted. Some are absent, as in short-term absent. My dad worked away from home loads when I was a teenager. He was away for three, four weeks on end at the other side of the world. We were lucky if we had one phone call. That was my reality. It will be some of yours as well. Some of our fathers are completely absent. They've never been present. Jesus says, our Father. And what we all need is a deep, abiding, life-changing, transforming experience, not just knowledge, experience of the love of Abba, Father. Because that touches everything in our hearts he speaks to our fears that no one loves us, our fears that we don't belong, our fears that we can't really know God, our fears of insecurity, our incapacity to carry on because we feel so weak and fragile within ourselves. Our Father 
Abba, Father, brings our intimacy by the power of the Holy Spirit into our lives. I'm going to leave it there, but if you want to talk or pray more about that, I fully expect that there will be people in this room who will want to do that at some point when you're ready. Our Father. And then Jesus goes on and he says this, Our Father in heaven. Actually, he doesn't. He says, Our Father in the heavens. Ah. If our calls us into community and Father invites us into intimacy, then in the heavens needs to be the foundation challenging us to adopt a cosmic spiritual perspective, something more than what we see, and to acknowledge the spiritual realm amidst our physical realities. When we say our Father in heaven, and particularly perhaps when we were littler than we are now, I think we kind of thought of him on a cloud somewhere, or far away, or maybe after you're dead. Uh, sort of like the celestial equivalent of God residing in the Bahamas or something. Yeah, our Father in heaven. But that's not what the Jews would have heard. When we say our Father in heaven, we, heaven is kind of like out there, isn't it? Out of space, out there. But for the Jews, our Father in the heavens meant something really different. So they had three heavens. I mean, that's great, isn't it? I think three heavens might be quite nice. The first heaven... In Jewish cosmology, are you listening? Because you might have. The first heaven is, uh, is the air we breathe, the air the birds fly about in. That's the first heaven. The first heaven's right here. You can kind of touch it. And the second heaven is the vast expanse of the night sky, where we get all those amazing uh, photos from the Hubble uh, telescope or whatever. That, that's the second heaven. It's the kind of out there, universe, heaven. And then the third heaven is the spiritual, non-material throne room of God, beyond the visible and the material. So when Paul says, I was caught up into the third heaven, he hasn't randomly selected a number or somewhat got kind of misled. He's intentionally saying to those who hear him, I was caught up, not by into the airspace, not into the outer space, but into this otherworldly realm, this parallel realm where the presence of God is in glory, the third heaven, our Father in the heavens. So he intends us in that very little phrase to see both aspects, his nearness, because he's near as the air we breathe, and his enormity, that he's not confined to just this space, but to outer space and to beyond that, into the spiritual realm, to everything that is material and non-material. His nearness, his incredible closeness to us, and his transcendence, that he transcends all that is, all our limitations. He has power over everything Every circumstance, every demon, every deity, every idol, he is transcendent over all those things. And Jesus invites us to an encounter with the Father who inhabits both the seen and the unseen heavens. Every place we are, so he is there.
every place where we are, so he is there. We may be distracted, but he never is. In the heavens speaks equally of the Father's majestic throne room and his amazing closeness. In the heavens beckons us into a greater spiritual perspective than ever we are before. Our Father in the heavens. One more phrase (laughs) today. (laughs) Jesus says, hallowed be your name. In the early church, the word hallowed signified anything that makes a person or thing the opposite of koinos, which is the word for common. So anything that was the opposite of common, you made hallowed, holy, set apart. Jesus says, hallowed be your name. Well, what's in a name? I'm not going on to quote Shakespeare, by the way, at this point. What's in a name? Well, it's our identity, isn't it? More often than not, and it's partly because of my name, when I say, when I ring up, most of you, I say, hi, it's Lisa. Very few of you say, Lisa who? Because there's not that many Lisas. Always work with every name. Lisa is just, just the name my parents decided for me. Well, truthfully, my dad decided for me. But it's, it says so much more than that. And I think that. When I think of you, when I think of your name, I immediately think of all the things that I know about you that make you you. It's our identity. Yahweh, I am who I am. Moses said, who shall I say sent me? Yahweh has sent you. Our name is related to who we are. It can be explanatory or revelatory in scriptures. It's very important. Abraham, you're going to be called Abraham, the father of all nations. Jacob, the one who took something that didn't belong to him became Israel, the one who struggles with God. Isaac, he laughs. Sarah, princess, all these names, Jesus, call him Jesus. Children were called after their fathers. No, don't call him after his father, call him Jesus, because he's going to save us. It's also reputation, isn't it? Not just identity, the identity of God, his greatness, his power, his glory, his honor, his holiness, his goodness, his faithfulness, but reputation. Is he those things? Is our experience of him those things? How a person acts, our experience of them. Reputation as well as identity. When we pray this, we mean that we're praying that both the Lord's identity and his reputation will be honoured by us. Lord, may you be honoured by the way that we live. Apologies for the American spelling on this, which is upsetting to me and to some of you. (laughs) Couldn't find a nice picture with the right spelling on it. Kind of first world problems, really, isn't it? The idea of hallowing is closely linked to glorifying. So when we say that we glorify the Father, and we use that phrase a lot in our worship songs, we are honoring his character. We hallow him. We also demonstrate his character. 
We have to hallow the name of the Lord, not just with our words and songs of adorations, but with lives of obedience and surrender. A connection here between what we say and sing and our behavior and reputation. So the question is, what does my life say about the Lord? I hate those kind of questions. I apologize. What, what does my life say about the Lord? What does our church community say about the Lord? What, do we, what kind of reputation do we throw onto his name by who we are individually and together? Because when we pray, hallowed be thy name, we are praying with that intention, let your name be seen as holy. Well, how is his name going to be seen as holy? Through me, through you, through us. Holiness sometimes feels today, doesn't it, like just completely over there somewhere. Abstract, unattainable, kind of at best, at worst sort of exclusive or judgmental. But God's holiness refuses to ignore our unholiness. And if we pray that prayer, let your name be holy, then we are praying for him to pervade us and our world. So I told you it wasn't going to be any easier than 1 Corinthians. And that reality is worked out in the rest of the prayer. So you have to come next week and the week after in order to see how that happens. But just in that very, very first phrase, our Father in the heavens, let your name be seen as holy. Is that enough to be going on with? So next week we're going to be looking at your kingdom come. And that's going to be fun, so I'm looking forward to that. Your kingdom come. I think that's it. I think I'm going to stop.